and welcome to the Respiratory Guru, the home of the respiratory, genuinely useful respiratory updates. My name's Diana Kavanagh and I am a respiratory consultant working at Samwell and West Birmingham Hospitals in the West Midlands. The aim of this podcast is to provide you with a monthly summary of the clinically relevant respiratory research that has been published within the past month that may affect how you practice on a day-to-day basis. For this reason, I have decided not to cover papers relating to intensive care, paediatric studies or lab level research, just the clinically relevant respiratory updates to make you feel like you're on top of your game. I am not including COVID-19 studies as I feel like this is a huge subject area now and would require really a podcast of its own. And finally, if you would like to leave a review at the end of this podcast, and that would be wonderful, although I would ask you to be either kind or constructive. The purpose of this podcast is to take time out of my own day to make your life and CPD easier. And therefore, if you will leave a review, then please do make sure it's either kind or constructive. So moving on to the first study, and this is a single case meta-analysis of fat embolism syndrome. Now, I've decided to include this because although I have yet to see it, if someone came into hospital on my take with a possible fat embolism syndrome, I would feel like I needed five minutes to go and hide somewhere while I quickly read the Oxford Handbook about how it presents and how to treat it. However, luckily, the authors of this meta-analysis and subsequently through this podcast have summarised 124 studies, including 135 patients who had a confirmed diagnosis of fat embolism syndrome. So patients who present with this most typically have had a bony fracture and of those fractures, um, neck of femur fracture or tib fib fractures are the most common. Orthopaedic surgery is the next most common reason for fat embolism syndrome. And then what I found interesting, because it makes sense, but I didn't think about it, is um, if somebody has had liposuction. The symptoms are most likely to present within the first 24 hours, with around 50% of people presenting within that time window. Then another 35% present between the 24 and 48 hours. They most typically present with respiratory abnormalities and 50% were found to be hypoxic, 42% breathless and 20% tachypneic. However, there are other more unusual presentations of fat embolism syndrome and this includes neurological abnormalities which can manifest as an altered GCS. They can also present as a fever and a particular rash and this was observed in 26% and 24% respectively. If patients presented as a cardiac arrest, then unfortunately this was strongly associated with mortality. With respect to diagnostics, the diagnosis was often arrived at clinically, plus or minus CT findings. On a CT scan, this presented rather non-specifically as ground gas opacities, and on a CT head where there's been neurological symptoms, then patients were found to have a low density shadow. And then with blood tests, where there were blood tests available, in the publications, 70% of patients had anemia and 60% had thrombocytopenia. Now, therapy was most commonly simply supportive, but 16% of patients received corticosteroids. Now, interestingly, when the authors examined the survivors versus non-survivors, it was far more likely that the survivors received corticosteroids rather than the non-survivors. It's proposed that perhaps the corticosteroids can relieve the inflammatory storm and cure cardiogenic shock in those patients with fulminant myocarditis, 
which shares much pathophysiology as fat embolism syndrome. The authors conclude that corticosteroid treatment is largely safe and may be associated with a reduced risk of death. So a useful meta-analysis of fat embolism syndrome presentations reminding us that patients typically present between 24 and 48 hours after a bony injury with respiratory symptoms but can present neurologically or with a rash or fever. The treatment is supportive but steroids seem to be associated with an improved survival and therefore if you should see one on your next medical take then this is something that can be considered. So the next paper is with respect to valproate-induced pleural effusions. So this looks like it was supervised in part by Prof Fail, who is one of the toxicology professors at the hospital where I used to work at. And obviously, with his experience of overseeing all these uh, drug-associated pleural effusions, has asked a team of doctors to uh, report a summary of 28 cases of valproate-induced pleural effusion. I just feel that it is important to talk about this subject briefly, as again, as respiratory physicians, if we're seeing a little bit of everything, this may help the one case you see in your career with a pleural effusion where no one knows what's causing it, but you know they're on valproate and you know what the problem is. So all that they have really done here is uh, explain the four different types of effusions that are associated from, with valproate. So out of the 28 cases, 17 had an exudative eosinophilic pleural effusion. And interestingly, 10 of the 17 also had a concurrent peripheral eosinophilia. The proposed mechanisms for this exudative eosinophilic uh, pleural effusion are that it is related to an acute hypersensitivity reaction, inflammation of the pleural cavity induced by the drug, or damage to the mesothelial cells by oxidant. The other cases of pleural effusion are very low in numbers, but the other three were valproate-induced lupus with pleural effusion, an exudative lymphocytic pleural effusion, and a transudative pleural effusion. And the conclusion by the authors were that although valproate-induced pleural effusion is rare, it is seen in patients receiving the drug. So now on to an exciting development with respect to refractory chronic cough and two phase 2A trials of novel drugs that seem to significantly reduce this frustrating and debilitating symptom. So two trials, two different drugs, but both work at the same receptor. So this new target is the P2X3 receptor, and this is found on the afferent sensory fibers of the vagus nerve for the airways. So when these receptors are stimulated by ATP, which is a downstream effect of um, any inflammation or an insult, the receptors are activated, which then stimulates a cough, presumably as a natural reflex to be able to expulse the offending agent. So this exciting development has meant that a novel pharmaceutical agent is now able to directly antagonize this receptor and there are multiple drugs that have been created and are in trials with two studies published within the last month. So they all end in Pixent. So the most common one seems to be Jeffapixent. So G-E-F-A-P-I-X-A-N-T. But actually studies with relation to this have been published earlier this year with two, however, late breaking abstracts where 
the Jeffa Pix Ant has been taken to phase three level successfully, though the publications for this are still pending. So we will talk about two published trials. So the first one is Elia Pixant, so E-L-I-A-P-I-X-A-N-T. This was a British study done over six UK sites, including one in the West Midlands by my old MD supervisor, Alice Turner. So this is a randomized placebo-controlled crossover phase 2A study where 20 patients were randomized to arm A and 20 patients randomized to arm B. So because this is a crossover study, the nature of this trial design was that in phase A, the nature of this design was that in arm A, Patients would receive a placebo for two weeks and then just 10 milligrams of eliopixent for one week. In arm B, patients would receive far higher doses. So they receive 50, 200 and 750 milligrams twice daily for one week per dose level. Patients were randomized one to one and then they would either go AB, then BA. And the primary efficacy endpoint was a change in cough frequency assessed over 24 hours. And the primary safety endpoint was the frequency and severity of adverse events. So 37 patients completed the full randomization therapy. And what the authors found was that the overall mean cough frequency fell by 17.4% in the treatment arms, as it were, versus placebo. They found that to reduce the cough frequency, this had to be a dose of 50 milligrams or greater. And at this level of 50 milligrams, this reduced not only the cough frequency, but also the cough severity. So there were some mild or moderate adverse events, but these were largely associated to taste. But actually, the placebo group of patients reported more adverse events than the treatment arm. So a very exciting development in the pharmaceutical research for treating this frustrating symptom that we all see in our clinical practice. And we look forward to seeing the results of trials as they now go through their phase three process, as it's after the phase three trials that regulatory approval can be sought to go into general availability for us clinicians. Now, the next study is a very similar concept. So again, it's a phase 2A randomized placebo-controlled crossover study. But the name of this drug was Sevopixent, which in the background chit-chat, the authors say that this particular medication has a higher selectivity towards the P2X3 receptor than previously discussed Jefepixent. Okay, so patients were randomized to either receive oral sevopixent, 150 milligrams, or placebo once daily for two weeks, followed by a two to three week washout period, and then crossed over to have the other treatment, with the endpoints being efficacy and safety to be evaluated. So 31 patients were randomized and 15 patients in each arm successfully completed the study. What the authors found was that the civipexant reduced the average hourly number of coughs by 31% and the total over 24 hours cough by 30%. There was a reported overall improvement in health-related quality of life and the treatment-related adverse effects were higher in the treatment arm at 12.9%, but again reported as simply mild in just two patients and taste disturbance. So this is a really fascinating development for those patients that we all get referred and is really quite a heart sink 
threshold that we reach once we've um, ruled out all the typical causes of a chronic cough, e.g. asthma, vocal cord dysfunction. Um, the 24-hour pH monitoring study never shows what you want it to show. And we're left with the patients who have this cough that the only treatment prior to now really is going down the Gord Avenue anyway of omeprazole and metoclopramide, etc., or even MST. So finally, there looks like there is a drug that could actually have a, in some cases, 30% reduction in their symptoms, which would be absolutely game-changing. I think that if and when this drug becomes available, it should probably still remain in the hands of the respiratory consultants who are doing that workup process and ruling out all the differential diagnoses. I would hate for this to become the antidote to cough as paracetamol is to pain in that it's handed out like sweets without the cause of the cough truly being elucidated. Clearly, if there is an, an organic trigger for the cough that we can treat properly, such as asthma, then this is going to have a, a longer and more efficacious effect. However, this is a fantastic development and watch this space. So next, I thought it might be nice to include a guideline or two where possible if there has been one recently published. And the most recent respiratory guideline that I can find is obstructive sleep apnea, which was released in August of this year, although its terminology has been slightly changed to OSAHS to amalgamate obstructive sleep apnea hypopnea syndrome. So they've added the syndrome into the diagnosis to really incorporate the symptoms that the patients report, which is the um, waking and fragmented sleep leading to this excessive tiredness, sleepiness or fatigue. And it's often this that the patients report. But the guidelines cover OSAHS. They also cover obesity hypoventilation syndrome, which covers those patients who are obese with a BMI over 30 with an raised arterial CO2 level when awake and breathing abnormalities during sleep. There is also now a COPD-OSAHS overlap syndrome, which is new to me, but of course I knew the two diseases individually, but now there is a syndrome that incorporates the two where a patient has COPD and OSAHS with the emphasis that the combined effects of the conditions is greater than either alone. So the presenting features of OSAHS haven't changed, you'll be glad to know. And if the patient has two or more features, e.g. the apneas, the waking headaches, excessive sleepiness, etc., then not only should we do the usual taking a history on the Epworth sleepiness scale, but we should also now consider using the stop bang questionnaire. So I feel like I've heard this before, but it wasn't something that was a regular thing when I was taking my exams, but it's clearly a great tool at specifically looking at the symptoms of OSA. The Epworth sleepiness score, as you'll know, simply refers to how tired or sleepy the patient is, and this isn't specific for OSA as a condition. And if the patient is then suspected of having this syndrome based on the history in the questionnaires, then they should be referred to a sleep clinic and importantly, be informed of what the DVLA instructions are. So this is quite simple in that the patient is required to tell the DVLA of their excessive sleepiness if they have this in association with suspected moderate or severe OSA, if they have narcoplexy or cataplexy and are on treatment but it's only recently been initiated and they need to have three months worth of stable therapy before that they can then resume normal duties. 
the patients must not drive until they're free from excess sleepiness. Um, and if they do get caught, then they could be fined a thousand pounds. So with respect to diagnosing OSAHS, then the patient should be offered home respiratory polygraphy. But if this is if this is limited, then consider home oximetry. And consider polysomnography if the oximetry results are negative, but the patient still has significant symptoms that you're concerned about. Now, when I used to do sleep clinics, I found that the referral time for some of these patients, particularly for polysomnography, could be ridiculous, i.e. upwards of six months. And so if you have a patient who has the necessity for an urgent rapid assessment, then you should make this clear in your referral letter and even call the polysomnography unit. So the priority factors for rapid assessment for OSAHS is a vocational driving or vigilance critical job unstable cardiovascular disease, pregnancy, pre-op assessment for major surgery, or non-arteroteric anterior ischemic optic neuropathy. Now, once you've confirmed your diagnosis, then you can start the treatment of CPAP and consider a tonsillectomy if the patient does have large obstructive tonsils and their BMI is less than 35. So if they have mild OSA with symptoms that are impacting their quality of life, then you can offer them fixed level CPAP. And the same is true for moderate to severe OSAHS. So patients should be offered telemonitoring for up to 12 months and consider it for longer if their symptoms remain uncontrolled. And you can consider auto CPAP instead of fixed level CPAP if a high pressure is needed only for certain times during sleep. If fixed level CPAP is simply not tolerated, if telemonitoring is not available, or if the auto CPAP is available as well as the fixed level, um, as the auto CPAP is more uh, tailored to the patient's needs and for the time being the price is the same. Rhinitis or nasal congestion can really get in the way of some patients tolerating CPAP so consider heated humidification for any upper airway side effects and perhaps changing the mask from a nasal to an oral facial mask to improve tolerance. In extreme cases or moderate to severe OSA that is not being treated by the CPAP significantly then you can consider referral for assessment for oropharyngeal surgery. So now moving on to OHS, so obesity hypoventilation syndrome. And you can do a bedside test of the serum venous bicarbonate as a preliminary test if you suspect that the chances of OHS are low. And if the bicarb level is less than 27, then you can really discount OHS as it's very unlikely. Do the ABG when the patient's awake to assess the extent of the chronic ventilatory failure. And the priority factors that were there before with respect to who should be investigated and treated for um, OSA are really the same for OHS. Um, plus, if they have a severe hypercapnia, i.e. with a CO2 greater than seven, or they're hypoxic during the day with a SATs level of less than 94%. So after all of that, if you find yourself with an OHS patient who is not in acute ventilatory failure, then offer CPAP and <clears throat> heated humidification if concerns about rhinitis. Then monitor and offer NIV as an alternative if symptoms do not improve, the hypercapnia persists or the AHI or ODI are not significantly reduced. If, however, you've diagnosed acute ventilatory failure, then of course they need NIV and you should continue to monitor the CO2. Now, if the CO2 persists, then they need to remain under, under um, observation for continued optimization. And if the hypercapnia resolves, then consider stopping the NIV, followed by a repeat sleep study and switching to a trial of CPAP if 
there remains frequent episodes of obstructive sleep apnea. And now finally onto the COPD OSAH overlap syndrome. So diagnose the two with an awake blood gas and offer spirometry if not already performed. And if the patient is found to have OSAHS but with a hypercapnia less than seven, consider CPAP. However, if the patient has OSAHS and the nocturnal hyperventilation has been confirmed with a CO2 greater than 7, then consider NIV. And then as a final note that these patients who have COPD and OSAHS are in a pretty bad place with respect to respiratory failure. And therefore, if the patient is not improving with CPAP or NIV, then really you should consider stopping the non-invasive ventilatory strategies and switching to more of a symptom management approach to improve the symptoms or quality of life, but really, i.e. switching more to a palliative therapy. So this penultimate study was another meta-analysis looking at the effect of CPAP on weight and local adiposity in adults with obstructive sleep apnea. So it has been observed that patients who are started on CPAP for the OSA actually gain weight. And it's unclear whether this happens because of CPAP adherence in some way or due to some kind of comorbid disorder. So the authors set out a meta-analysis to examine the CPAP effects on BMI and local adiposity. So they analysed 39 RCTs in total, which included just under 7,000 patients. And by using an intention to treat analysis, they demonstrated that the BMI genuinely did increase in those patients who were started on CPAP compared with controlled patients, i.e. those not receiving CPAP. They found that not only did the BMI raise on the CPAP treated patients, but also the waist and neck circumference went up. But a really interesting finding that they found was that this increase in BMI with CPAP use was at a five hour cutoff. So if the patient used CPAP for five hours or less per night, then this was associated with an increased BMI. If the patient's adherence was greater than five hours per night, then actually the BMI did not increase. So why is it that when patients wear the CPAP machine for less than five hours a night, do they increase their weight? So if you're wearing the CPAP machine by less than five hours a night, this means that you're probably still up and down in the night in some form. And I wonder if you can draw comparisons for these patients and night shift workers. So I'm actually reading an amazing book at the moment that I would encourage anyone to also listen to about metabolomics called Why We Eat in Brackets Too Much by Dr. Andrew Jenkinson, who is a bariatric surgeon in London. And it was quite convenient that I listened to this particular chapter in his book today and this paper, um, but could certainly see similarities. So stick with me. Night shift workers are known to have an increased risk of stroke, heart attack, diabetes, and so on. And this might be related to two hormonal changes. So in night shift workers, the leptin level, which is your master controller of weight set point, is reduced in night shift workers. 
Now, normally a reduction in leptin is seen in patients who are dieting. And this has the effect of telling the body that you've entered into starvation mode because your body really doesn't know the difference between a diet and starving. It just knows that there's a lack of calories coming in. So the lower leptin levels stimulate your appetite and reduce your basal metabolic rate. So lower leptin levels and higher appetite subsequently are found in night shift workers. And could this be related again to our up and down CPAP patients in the night? The next point is that melatonin ordinarily increases our sensitivity to leptin and reduces our cortisol levels. This makes sense because when we're sleeping, we want to have low cortisol and be nice and calm, and we want to have a higher leptin level and therefore lower appetite. We don't want to go um, hunting for food overnight. However, if you're a night shift worker, your melatonin levels are messed with because you've got lots of ambient light around and therefore the melatonin levels go down. If you are a CPAP patient and you're not getting on terribly well with a mask, are you going to be up and down in the night? Are you going to be putting the light on and therefore reducing your melatonin levels and increasing your cortisol levels, both leading to an increase in the weight set point? This makes sense to me. And I feel that this is a reasonable explanation as to why the BMI goes up in patients who are using CPAP for OSA for less than five hours a night. Now, I've gone a bit rogue on that and made my own link. And this isn't um, a explanation that the paper published in the annals of ATS have um, concluded. But I would encourage you to um, read this book because it's really good about why patients continually struggle with their weight on basically a westernized diet. And now finally onto the last paper, which is a Cochrane review looking at integrated disease management interventions for patients with COPD. So integrated care is something that I think we're all um, aware of, if not dabbling in ourselves. And I certainly participate in weekly MDTs in the community with GPs and then the community respiratory nurses, pharmacists, and so on to help really get to the bottom of um, what the diagnosis is with the patient, what their active problems are with respect to possible um, frequent attenders, for example, and streamlining some of the prescribing to bring it in line with the guidelines. So the practice of integrated uh, medicine with COPD, I think, is still extremely heterogeneous um, based on the local population and available services. So this systematic review has combined 52 RCTs and a total of 21,000 patients. The inclusion criteria for the study was that healthcare was being provided by at least two or more providers, that the healthcare was multi-component in nature and that this uh, continued for at least three months. Patients were followed up for various amounts of times, but the authors divided the follow-up um, for analysis into short-term, so less than six-month follow-up, medium, six to 15 months, and long-term of uh, 15 months or greater. The Studies came from a total of 19 different countries and the average age of the patient was 67 and 66% of the participants were male. So the authors found that integrated disease management or IDM for short, probably increased the SGRQ by just under four points in both the short and medium term. The authors um, 
were a bit negative of the result in that they said it was below the MCID of four, but I've seen far less impressive SGRQ changes in trials for inhalers, so I think that this is still not a change to be sniffed at. They also found that the exercise capacity was probably increased in the short, medium and long term uh, for those in the IDM arm, this time all well above the MCID for the six-minute walk test. So the MCID for six-minute walk is 35 metres, but the best improvements were seen in the short term where they had a 52 metre improvement in their six metre walk test. They found that the respiratory related admissions reduced from 324 per thousand patients down to 235 in the IDM arm and there were reduced ED visits and a slight reduction in all hospital admissions. Each of these with an odds ratio of one and the 95% confidence intervals all less than one. They found that compared with uh, usual standard of care and IDM, there was no overall difference in mortality, the causes of antibiotics and steroids prescribed, shortness of breath or anxiety and depression levels. The authors conclude that they feel future research needs to be done, which can help understand which combination of therapies and which interactions are most effective at achieving beneficial and cost-effective results. I personally don't feel I have the answer for this either at the moment in that certainly the pandemic has changed things dramatically and the pressure on GPs has escalated enormously over the past year and a half. So prior to the pandemic, the GPs had time to engage in um, education sessions where we could all meet up for half a day and discuss respiratory patients at our leisure and have a multidisciplinary approach. However, with the demands on the NHS as they are, actually, sadly, we've had to cancel the traditional MDTs and we're currently just doing MDTs with the uh, community respiratory nurses so that we are still discussing the complex cases and we are still targeting uh, frequent attenders. But this isn't in the true holistic sense of a MDT with GPs. So there is a new research initiative called the Integrated Respiratory Research Collaborative, or the acronym for this is INSPIRE. Now, this is a UK research network for early career respiratory clinicians looking to bring together and with power in numbers, take forward any strong integrated respiratory care research ideas into practice. So if this is something that you're interested in, then you can follow them on Twitter at INSPIRE, all in capital letters, RESP underscore UK the deadline for submissions sometime in January. So that is the end of today's podcast. I hope it was helpful and join in next time where we will be discussing three studies in relation to asthma and biological therapies, plus the executive summary of the new GINA guidelines. We will also be discussing three papers that look at air pollution, specifically with reference to years of life lost and the effects on lung function. Thank you and goodbye. Music